0: Well, turn with me this evening to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 for our evening meditation here to close out the Lord's Day. We've been looking at the sermons in Hebrews during the Lord's Day morning. And I always enjoy the Advent season sermons, looking either at the Gospels or, again, as we're doing uh, this year, looking at Hebrews But since we are in Hebrews, we will not have a sermon from the Gospels on the Lord's Day morning. And I'm just not sure you can have Christmas come and go and not look at the Gospels at least once. So for our Sunday evening meditation, rather than uh, moving ahead to the next minor prophet, let's look tonight at Luke 2, the Christmas story, perhaps one of the best known Christmas passages or passages at all uh, in the Bible, Luke chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 14, brothers, sisters, let us hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger.' Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests amen as i said the passage that we are considering this evening this may be the best known christmas passage in the whole bible often read at christmas time or nativity scenes or what have you parents reading this on christmas morning perhaps As their children wait, I'm sure, so patiently uh, to open the presents that are under the Christmas tree. I read one year, by the way, to our kids, Revelation 12 on Sunday or on Christmas morning. Because it talks about how the woman was going to have the baby and the dragon was going to devour it. And yet God intervened to rescue the child. That's a Christmas passage. And so I read that to my family, and somebody in the extended family said, this is what happens when you have a pastor for a family. You get Revelation 12 on Christmas morning. So anyway, Luke 2, one of the best-known Christmas passages in the Bible. And it breaks down very simply into two halves. You have in verses 1 to 7 the very simple story of the Savior's humble birth in Bethlehem. You can read it, and the details are obvious, but we'll highlight some of the historical background as we go through it. But it's a beautiful, simple story of the Savior's humble birth. And then, in verses 8 through 14, you have the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds in the field. And in the announcement, you have brought out the significance of the story. So, in the first part, here's what happens. And in the second part, here's what that Is all about. And in a sense, it's a story that captures what the Bible is all about the coming of Christ, God coming to save his people from their sins. So I want to approach it like that this evening. We'll look at the story itself in verses 1 through 7, and then the significance of the story in verses 8 through 14. What does it tell us about who Jesus is and what he does? So, first, friends, the Christmas. Story. Verses 1 through 7, a simple story that situates Jesus and his birth within world history. Verse 1 begins with these familiar words In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So, shortly after John the Baptist was born, Jesus' cousin, a formal decree was issued that required everyone to travel to their hometown and register for taxation purposes. And as I heard one preacher say this, interestingly, he said, here's one way to think about the census. The government said, for the sake of public welfare, you need to close your business. So whenever you say, man, our times are so different from any that have come before, are they really that different? The government wanted to tax, and so they told everybody, shut down what you're doing and go and go. And register for this census. Now the Caesar that issued the decree was Augustus, also known as Octavian. He was the first Roman Emperor. His predecessor was Julius Caesar who tried to consolidate power but was assassinated by rival forces. Well Octavian came to the throne following the assassination of his uncle Julius Caesar. And he was a guy who knew how to administer an empire. His whole reign was uh, characterized by very capable administration, seasons of peace. He even was uh, strongly against uh, adultery because he thought that tore up the fabric of the empire. He strongly valued private property. So it was a time in which things were going very well in the empire. And it was one that followed a time of civil strife. And this... Taxation, this census was really a part of that whole program. Let's get the empire organized, let's get them registered, and let's get them taxed. So in obedience to this decree, the people who live in Palestine, but they often what we often call the Holy Land, they all went to their ancestral town. Where's your family from? Well what's your original home city? Go there and register and that's how we'll come up with the taxation. Well, Joseph, he is a descendant of King David. And so he goes to Bethlehem, David's hometown. And not by accident, years before, the prophet Micah had prophesied. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, From ancient times. There's the providence of God. You've got this prophecy. And so God providentially puts Jesus' parents in the very city where the Messiah must be born. Now verse 4 tells us that Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now for what it's worth, in the geography of Palestine, uh, Bethlehem is actually south of Nazareth. So why do the scriptures say that he went up to Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem is a higher elevation. So he's actually going up in elevation, even though he is traveling south. It was about a 90-mile journey. Not a big deal for any of us these days. But think of travel in those days. Travel uphill. And what do we know about Joseph's traveling companion, Mary? She was pledged. To be married to Joseph and was expecting a child. In other words, all the arrangements of the marriage had been laid, but the marriage had not yet been consummated. So again, a reference to Jesus as the virgin-born son of God. But you have to imagine this must have been a difficult trip. 90 miles over foot or riding some kind of animal when you're ready to give birth would have been quite difficult. So sometime after they arrive in Bethlehem, the time comes for Jesus to be born. Now verse 7 tells us, really the climax of the first part here, the passage of the story itself, that after Mary delivered Jesus, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now if I hadn't finished that verse, if I let your mind... Finish the verse, you would have thought there's no room for them in the inn. And you're wondering, why are you using a translation that uses the word guest room? That doesn't sound anything like the story uh, that we traditionally know. Well, interestingly, the word often translated as inn, that word in English makes us think of a formal inn. Think of a commercial establishment, somewhere that provides lodging and food For the public, especially travelers, like a small hotel. Well, that wasn't the case there in Bethlehem. We don't even know if establishments like that existed back in Jesus' day. So it probably wasn't a formal inn in that sense. It was probably a large house, most likely a relative's house, maybe a public shelter where people could travel in and find some place to stay. But it's been filled to capacity, So the big idea is still the same. No matter what the building looks like, there is no room for them. But very likely, this was some distant relative's house who's taken in so many people because of the census that there just simply aren't any more rooms. They can't stay with them. They can't find anywhere to go. And so they must seek shelter elsewhere. Now again, interestingly, the text never says directly they stayed in a stable. But we deduced the fact that they were around animals because Mary laid her baby in a manger, which most likely refers to a feeding trough. So they're around some kind of place that's used to house animals. And that area, though, very likely such a building wouldn't have been a wooden building like we may imagine a stable to be, but very possibly a cave with the manger hewn out of the rock wall. So why do I say all that? It's just okay, let's play Mythbusters with the traditional Christmas story. No, it's just the idea that we need to conceive of Jesus as being born in very humble circumstances. A difficult journey, not even family can receive them, and they have to go out among the animals, maybe even in a cave, and put Jesus into the animals feeding trough and here's the point that's not where you expect to find the lord of all but that's how he comes in a humble manner why because he's coming to save the humble as we look this morning he's going to humble himself and go through suffering that's how he'll be crowned with glory and honor and as mary had said in the previous chapter in her song God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the ones who belong to the kingdom of God. Those who know their own affliction, that they have nothing to offer God, and perhaps have been rejected by others, but therefore find their salvation in God. He came that way himself. And that's the beautiful story we celebrate every Christmas. Now let's look then at the second part of the passage Let's consider the significance of the story. Those are the details, but so to speak, the, the so what moment, what's the big deal? How does that connect to the Bible's story of salvation in our lives? What does this well-known and treasured story tell us about who Jesus is and what he's come to do? Well, the answers to those questions emerge from the angel's announcement. What they happen to say about Jesus and how the shepherds respond tells us a lot about what the story is all about. So in verse 8, having told this humble account, the scene changes dramatically because now we have a heavenly declaration from the mighty angel. So Jesus was born in humble circumstances, but he is still the second person of God and worthy of all worship, and these verses will emphasize that. Verse 8 reads, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, by the way, when people tell the Christmas story, sometimes they may depict the shepherds as culturally despised people of questionable character, and the payoff there is, you know, Jesus is going to save sinners, so he comes to sinful people. Those ideas do appear to arise hundreds of years after this story itself. Nothing indicates that the shepherds are of questionable character or that they have any ill repute among the people. In fact, God himself in the Old Testament describes himself as a shepherd. King David was one who shepherded God's people. So I don't know if that idea of the shepherd sticks. But if there's any idea we could take away, it's just reinforcing what? The aura of humility. Because these certainly weren't the power brokers or the rich and famous in Israel during that time. Now, shepherds would often sleep with their flocks in order to protect them from robbers and wild animals. So while these shepherds sleep, suddenly the angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord shines around them. And the glory of the Lord, that signifies the presence of God himself. And when the shepherds see the presence of God manifested here in the angel of appearing i love how the shepherd or how the angel responds to the shepherds the shepherds are terrified and so the angel says do not be afraid now on the one level we're thinking well why why should they be afraid i mean god is good god is our friend i think sometimes we forget he is our savior and friend and we draw near to him as a father but there's still something so awesome and majestic about the divine presence, even when it's angels showing up to announce God's good news, that it causes us to tremble. We know we're in the sense of something great, and we feel our smallness and perhaps even our sinfulness. And a very natural, and I would say even healthy response, is to fear. But this is the glory and grace of the gospel. Because God then responds to his people, not with terror, and not to crush them through fear, but to say, do not fear. And why shouldn't they fear? Because God is bringing them good news and joy. And that's why the angel goes on to say, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel that will cause great joy for all. Now what is it about the birth of Christ? Why is that good news? And how does that bring joy? Well the answer comes in verse 11, where we get God's explanation of who this baby is that has been born in Bethlehem. The angel says, revealing the truth of God, speaking on God's behalf, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is is the Messiah, the Lord. Look at three words there that deserve our attention. First, Jesus is called Savior, a title that often occurs in the Old Testament, usually referring to God himself. God is the one who saves Israel from all her enemies, often in the Old Testament used in terms of delivering them from oppressors, delivering them from foreign invaders, Well, as we've often pointed out in our series on the prophets, all those earthly battles point to something greater. That Israel has a more serious enemy than Assyria or Babylon, Satan himself. And they have a bigger problem than any military weakness. It is their sin. And so God is working to solve that problem. And so when Jesus appears, when his birth is announced, he is given the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He's a savior. Secondly, he is called Messiah, or your translation may render it Christ. Messiah emphasizes the Hebrew word, Christ emphasizes the Greek equivalent, really refers at the end of the day to the same thing, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed before they were going to do the job God had called them to do. They were anointed, a symbol of God's Spirit, empowering them to be good kings or good prophets or good priests. Now what's interesting is you see throughout the Old Testament and into the period of time prior to Christ's coming, just this expectation developing among God's people that God would one day send a prophet and a priest and a king Who could do what all these previous ones can't do? Hebrews makes this argument. And God's people at times began to put it together. The prophets are good, but no one fully reveals God. Especially when it comes to the priesthood, Hebrews emphasizes, they never finish their job. They serve and more priests come, but no one's ever done. And of course, all you have to do is read the record of kings to know how wicked they can be. And that a greater one must come. Well, Jesus comes and unites within himself those offices of prophet, priest, and king. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And he'll fulfill all those things that the Old Testament anticipated. And thirdly, finally, Luke calls Jesus the Lord. Another frequent Old Testament title that usually refers to God. Luke often uses this title to describe Jesus in his writings. He's trying to make the point Jesus equals God. His authority is on the same level as that of God. Like God, he is to be honored and obeyed. Again, because he is God, it's the Savior and Messiah, God Himself, Emmanuel. And you know, we might even see also in this title, Lord, just a subtle political polemic against the claims of the Roman emperor. You see, in later writings about Caesar Augustus, his birth will be hailed as good news, as gospel. But Jesus' birth, Luke wants us to know, is the true good news. You know, Caesar may may appear to be in control. After all, he can order this census and everyone has to go back to their hometown. But there's a real sovereign lord of history. And, you know, things beyond our control may, be, uh, may look like that's what really is running this world right now from humans to all sorts of virus effects and all those other things. But, you know, there's a real Lord of history. And he'll use all these things to accomplish his will. Caesar thought, I'm running the world. I'm running a good empire. God says, no, you're, you're just doing what I want you to do to bring about what I've promised to do. The birth of... Of the Savior who will bring the real peace and the real salvation. And as I've already said, you you would expect a Savior like that to be found in Herod's palace or greater. But no, you find him in these humble circumstances, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. But no sooner, by the way, had that announcement been made when the narrative moves to this dramatic finish, verses 13 to 14. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So who is Jesus? He's God, he's Lord, He's Messiah, He's Savior. What does He do? Two things from verse 14, and then we'll make application. First, he brings glory to God. Glory to God in the highest heaven. This exclamation sometimes called the Gloria in Excelsis Deo because of the lines in the Latin text, the old Latin Vulgate used for so long. We see that line in some of our best-known Christmas hymns. As Jesus appears, he brings glory to God to God. Why? He brings the very power of God. He brings the very presence of God. He brings the majesty of God, and worship and honor belongs to him. He brings God glory. And second, he brings peace. Again, the traditional translation of verse 14 reads, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Here we have one of the areas where there's a little difference In the manuscript tradition, and the better manuscripts read, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So it's not just that there's peace on earth, goodwill towards men in general. No, rather, God's goodwill, God's peace, rests on those with whom he favors. That is, the people he chooses and who respond to him in faith. They are the ones who have peace. And it's a true peace, an inner peace, a peace the world can't disturb. We we may have our peace startled at times as God tries us, but eventually God stills the inner man. And we have wholeness. We have wholeness with God. God has put us in the right with him. We can have wholeness within ourselves, a tranquility from knowing and walking with God, wholeness and peace with others. That is what Christ came to give. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. What does He do? He brings glory to God and peace to His people, and we celebrate this every year. Not just because it's a traditional holiday, because it's right to remember that this is who Jesus is, and we should give glory and worship to Him. Let me close with these applications, and they're both—they're uh, all to the point. Again, I've given this encouragement. Already this season, I've given this encouragement a lot this year because it needs to be given that you can rest in God's control. No matter what's going on around you, far or near to you, this story tells us of a God who controlled every event in the world, including a taxation event, in order to lead to Jesus' birth. And he is still in control. Of the affairs of the world. He will provide for the needs of His people. He will take care of you throughout this season. Second, just keep in mind to take time to meditate this season in your Bible reading time, morning or evening. Take time to think just on Christ's humble birth. It may not be as many of the holiday things we're used to. In fact, this Sunday most likely had. If this been a normal year, would have probably been the choir event tonight or the children's Christmas event. The choir event or the children's event, whichever order it was, the next Lord's Day evening. It's different this year. We miss those things. But Christmas ultimately is about what? The humble Savior who came to save us from our sins. And we have that. Nothing can take that from us. We can worship and celebrate that. Third, in line with that, rest and rejoice in Christ's peace this holiday normally there's a little bit of christmas time stress just as it is with shopping and baking and and planning get-togethers and hey maybe that's a little bit easier so you you miss out on a little bit of that stress but there's stress in other areas stress about what people are doing how people are responding to the virus what's going on in our community how you're having to interact with people on those issues it can be stressful but christ brings peace so the real world problems we encounter have a real world solution Lord Jesus Christ, who gives peace among those with whom he is pleased. Tap into that peace this season. Fourth, praise Christ this season because of what he has done for you. The angels praised him at his birth. Take time to praise him here in the assembly and in your own home for his salvation. And finally, if God gives you the opportunity, proclaim his peace to others. Christmas can be one of the most exciting times of the year. It can also be one of the loneliness. It can be one of the most satisfying times of the year. It can be one of the emptiest. For some people, they they get to this time of the year, they start to reflect. There's an emptiness there. There's a disappointment there. Or with the other events going on this year, they may really be sensing their need for something. So if God gives you opportunity, maybe even pray for it. You could speak the kind word of God's gospel to another and and, and highlight the peace of God the mercy of God try, try to speak grace to that soul and, and give them that cup of cold water spiritually in Jesus' name invite them to come and worship next door as there listen to the preaching online perhaps that will reach them where they are and give them some grace this holiday season so let's thank God for his mercy to